Empire. Well, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, it's a Tuesday episode. What you're used to listening to is me and Hugo bullshit about... Bullshit. The, bullshit. Nah, talk about, debate, intensely debate and theorize about the... I tee up your awesome opinions. ...issues of the day. <laughs> um, we're recording this one uh, like a week and change before it's going to air because I'm not going to be in town to record... Um, at the usual time, and so we are switching it up and doing a kind of timeless topic, which is we're going to talk about um, meditation and also kind of evolution as you age intellectually and emotionally, um, and so, you know, basically a, a podcast that could run at any time, but we think this is a good time to do it. So, Hugo, this was your idea. Tell me why you well, want to was talk it, about it. It. It, was, it was my idea only because it's something you mention a lot just when we're chatting about whatever our lives, and... Uh, what interests me is two things. Well, one, just why don't we start by you describing your practice uh, right now? Sure. So, um, and I am a very, very bad at this, but what I try to do is every day uh, for 20 minutes, I set a timer and I... Uh, every day, like every morning? Like every morning. Thing? Yeah. For I have coffee first, but I try to do it in the morning just because it, it's, it's much easier to get done if it's part of a routine. Um and I do a few things. So the first is I just try to get a kind of situational awareness. So I think about what am I hearing? What am I tasting? What am I seeing? Which is not much because my eyes are closed. What am I smelling? And what am I? What do I physically feel? Right. Like and you do this on in one floor. spot in your apartment? Um, yeah. Yeah. Typically, there's there's a, a chair that I like to do it in. Okay. Um, then I just focus on my breath for about 17 minutes or so. I would say. Um, and all I do is just count to five and start over. Um, and then, uh, a little bit, you know what loving kindness is? No, go ahead. So basically it's like a meditation where you are either towards someone else or towards yourself kind of repeating a mantra like, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you live with ease, something like that, which mm -hmm. I can direct to someone else or towards myself, depending on what I need. That's usually the last minute or two. And that's roughly the, the 20 minutes. And how did this particular practice develop who who's is it somebody's sort of yeah so i have a or? wonderful teacher uh her name is kim brown and i take a i do a session with her every week uh, on zoom um and so that's separate from meditation you just check in with her once a week we meditate when we have it so that becomes my meditation via for that zoom day via zoom so that that on friday usually it's on fridays on fridays i won't meditate until i see her because otherwise i don't you know I'm doing it twice so um but I, I try to do it seven days a week. Kind of Kim helped me put this together. And one of the reasons that um, I see her weekly is, as you knowing me, I constantly have questions or thoughts or changes or doubts or whatever it is. So we spend the first part of the session talking through all of that, right? Um, which is almost a form of therapy in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, and then we meditate, and she'll kind of guide me through it. And then we'll spend a few minutes kind of talking about the meditation and kind of how it went for me. Um, and then we do it again the next week. Um, look, I don't know if you need to have a class every single week. I, I like it. I like the structure of it. I'm in a position where I can afford to do it. Um, is this so her full-time job? This is what she does? I think she writes. Yeah, I think she, she's in the meditation world. She writes uh -huh. books. She teaches. I think she does a bunch of different things. And how did you find her? Um, our friend Josh Isay found her for me. Josh okay. has become a really serious kind of student of Buddhism and Eastern religion and meditation. Josh goes on these five, six-day silent retreats. Would you ever do that? 
I think I go like on a one day, maybe. One day. Does, one do they do days. one day silent yeah, retreats? Yeah, for like idiots like me who can't handle six. <laughs> um, and there's a, a famous woman in the meditation called Sharon Salzberg, who Josh knows pretty well. And Josh asked her, her for a recommendation for okay. me, and she recommended Kim, and I highly recommend Have you ever Kim. met Kim in person? No. So does she live in New she York in City? Qu- yeah, she lives in Queens. I know that. Okay. I don't even know where. But I know what her apartment looks like because I see the Zoom background. Okay. Um, so that personal connection is just via Zoom, and that works fine. Yeah. I mean, look, I haven't seen my therapist in over three years, and I love my therapist. And but you used to, you, you met your therapist in person, right? Yeah, I had, I had heard. you know, look, right. I had probably pre-COVID two or three four years with her in person. Um, but once COVID started, it was just never, and we kind of got used to a better pattern. There was no reason for me to spend, you know, an hour commuting. Okay. Let's back up the the whole thing. So, um, you now have this regular practice that mm-hmm. is kind of working and you're able to stick to, but historically, or historically in terms of your own personal life, um, you've, in the beginning, you, there in the was beginning, light in the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning, there was a well, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, the last week's podcast to get the joke. Um, not even that good a joke, but, um, so the, the, uh, you've, you've had difficulty, um, establishing yeah. a practice, yeah, keeping try, to it. tried a lot so, of times. So let's talk about that and let, let's, let's go talk back to the very earliest time. Why did you want to start originally? And then because why was my motivations were well-intentioned, but off the first few times, which is the first three or four times I tried, and I don't mean like and I how said, old were you? Like this is ten years ago. This has been going on over the last yeah ten years. Let's call okay. it like tried in that I went to classes at the there's like a transcendental meditation institute in Midtown. I went to classes there. I got a tutor, kind of not unlike Kim, but but years before and, and in person, and 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 did that. I downloaded twenty different apps and Headspace and everything else. Did you like Headspace at all? You know the problem, no. But but I think it's also in part because I was doing it for the wrong, again, well intentioned, but the wrong reason, which is I was doing it because I felt like I was I should do it, right? I was doing it because when you look at lists of like, what do happy people do what are well-adjusted people do what are techniques to deal with anxiety whatever it is that's on every single list and I was like therefore I should do these things and so you know in a well-intentioned way I kept going about it but the reality is I wasn't ready yet I didn't actually want to do it I just felt like I should do it and of course like a lot of things if you feel like you should do something and you don't but you don't actually want to do it and it's not essential right um, you end up not doing it. It doesn't work. So what shifted? How did it go from something so you I, felt like I you went should do through to something a year, you wanted? A few things. So one is I, I really went through a year, 2022, of, of pretty intense personal exploration. And over the course of the year, kind of three tentpole type things, to use a movie term, I guess, that um, – that I did. So I did in the January of that year, I did ketamine therapy, which I've talked about on this podcast before. And, and that was really, for me, a transformational experience because what ketamine does is it temporarily reopens the neuroplasticity of your brain. So when you're a kid, ideas, thoughts, concepts, emotions, you can absorb all of it. You're like a sponge because this incredible elasticity. Um, in your brain, and as you get older, it's like, you know, it hardens and calcifies, and then all of a sudden you get ingrained in what it is that you think. And oftentimes you have these narratives that are running through your head about your life or about other people or whatever else that aren't actually accurate, but you're sort of stuck in them, right? And so um, the reason I did ketamine was there were things that I intellectually knew to be true 
but I also understood that I just couldn't process uh, emotionally. And I thought, well, maybe with the help of this drug and if the neuroplasticity and the pathways are opened up, um, I can do that. And so I did. And I did it in a, I would argue, very responsible way, meaning I really put the work in. Um, I knew exactly what I was doing, why I was doing it, what I was trying to accomplish. I did all the prep work, all of the journaling. Um, at the conclusion of each session, we've talked this before, um, I wrote a memo to myself effectively. In fact, the, the, maybe the most useful piece of page I've ever written in my life is after the first session, I wrote down a list of these are all my good qualities, these are all my bad qualities. And on the bad quality, it's something that for me was remarkable, which was rather than to, okay, I gotta fix all of these, right? Like, I, how do I solve all of this? Because, you know, I don't like to have anything bad. I was like, they're all fucking fine. Don't worry about them. Because when I went through them... Wait, that was your conclusion? That was or my it, conclusion. And, and was that part of what the exercise was supposed to do? No, or? no, no one told me to do this. Right. I, I just did it. But I think even that the first ketamine session helped me it accept It sounds kind of like a Darth Vader moment a little bit. A little right? bit, yeah. yeah. But, but what I realized was most of these negative qualities... Um, didn't hurt anybody else, I see. right? Okay. They were all things so where, so me hating myself for being insecure or needy or seeking affirmation and validation or whatever it was, I was doing more harm by berating myself and hating myself for it than the actual bad quality itself. So this document, is this something you like sort of take a look at? From time yeah, to time? So, so, so what I did was after each of the six, so it was six sessions, uh, I think it was every week or every other week on, I did it on Saturday morning, um, at the office, and um, and I kept writing, uh, shockingly, and I ended up with about a 25-page memo to myself. I then read that memo every day, initially two or three times a day for six months, mm -hmm. um, and I internalized it, you know, tremendously, and I got to the point where I didn't, there weren't just words on a piece of paper, they were my beliefs, they were my true values and beliefs, and that radically reshaped how I saw myself, my acceptance of myself. I liked myself a lot better, how I saw the world, how I saw my sense of obligation vis-a-vis -vis everyone else and the world. Is that right, vis-a-vis, -vis, is that how you say it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I'm always confused by that. Too. And um, so I did that. Then that summer, um, I took a 12-week class in dialectical behavioral therapy, which we've also talked about a lot in this podcast. Mm -hmm. And DBT is a new-ish school of thought, meaning when Marshall Linehan started working on it maybe 40 years ago or something like that. So new, newish. Um, and it's really about um, a few things. One is it's, it's the significance of validation. It is the recognition that actually what people want more than even to get their way is just to feel heard and listened to and respected. So part of it is it teaches you to be able to, even when you're saying no about something, whatever it is, validate the person, validate the feeling they have. It's a genuine, legitimate feeling for them to have or idea for them to have or whatever it is. And instead of saying no, but, it's sort of yes and. Yes, you feel these ways, which is totally valid, this is that. And here's why it might not make sense in this particular situation to apply it in this way. Um, so there's a lot about that. There's a lot of sort of tools around dealing with um, anxiety and interacting with other people. And, and I found it to be an incredibly interesting uh, and helpful process. My daughter, Abby, was was going through a lot of challenge at the time. I'm saying this because she has come on the podcast herself and talked about it. So she was learning DBT 
And I wanted to know what she was learning. And um, it was, you know, really a way that I think took that radical acceptance concept that I had fought my whole life and then finally started sort of understanding um, with Academy. And I think DBT really took it to the next level. And by the way, it was enormously helpful for Abby, too. She, you know, like a lot of teenagers during COVID, she got caught in this perfect storm of isolation, internet, um, year 13, year 14, all of the stuff. And it was really hard for her. And DBT was tremendously effective in, in helping her establish tools. To, to We all have anxiety all the time. It's just a question of what tools do we use to deal with it. So that was the middle of the year. So, so I did the ketamine in January, early February. I did the DBT kind of, I think it was like June, July, August, July, August, September, something like that. Um, and then starting that November, um, I started taking these meditation classes with Kim and really started putting the work in. And the reason I wanted to do it was I felt like, okay, one, I now see what the gains can be if I put in the work on myself in certain ways. But, but you know, for all of my flaws, and there are a lot, um, lack of hard work is never one of them, right? And so it wasn't that I wasn't genuinely trying before, but I think what I understood was I needed another outlet still to deal with anxiety. So one of the things that I really struggle with, as you know, is weed consumption, right? Um, I have OCD, so I have tremendous rumination in my head of, of constant thoughts. Um, and they're not like crazy, you know, the dog talking to you, whatever, but <laughs> it's just obsessing over the same stupid shit without actually making any progress on it over and over in your head. And the reason I like weed is it quiets thoughts, right? right. It, it just... it it relaxes me and and that for me because OCD takes so much energy for me all mm -hmm. the time that it is just like it's a real relief right but what i realize is i need to be able to feel relief without getting high right like that's that can't be the go to every time that i feel tremendous anxiety or whatever else and i felt like meditation could be a genuine outlet for that instead um, and so that's, you know, I think the reason why I felt truly motivated this time to want to do it as opposed to should doing it um, and why it stuck. And I think from there, what the benefit has been is like, you know, I enjoy the, the, the 20 minutes each day and I find it relaxing, but it's not so much the value of that. It's the value of then a, developing the skill of mindfulness and applying it to other stuff. So even like if you take weed consumption, and I was talking to my therapist about the other day, and she made a really good point, which is you're not mindful in your weed consumption. It's like there are times where, and it makes sense, like I, I don't drink, so if I'm out for dinner with some friends and everyone's drinking, there's no reason that I can't, you know, take a couple of heads off of a vape in, instead of having a drink. That's totally fine. Have a good time. Great. Or maybe even if something truly bad happens and the anxiety is so crushing that, I, you know, it would be a logical way to relieve it. That's okay, right? But because you're bored or right. because you're a little anxious or whatever or it is. some free time on a Saturday. Yeah, and just that's around. not a good reason. Right. Her point was you need to use it mindfully, meaning there are times where it makes total sense. Go ahead, do it. Enjoy it. You're a human being. And there are times where it doesn't really help you at all. And by the way, it has all kinds of negative consequences, not so much in the act thereof because it's not like it's not like a drunk or anything like that you're just like a, a, a little relaxed but um it stays in your system right and it, it gives me a headache and it makes me tired and it makes me irritable the next day and everything else and so the physical negative effects of it are significant enough 
that I should only do it when it really, really makes sense, meaning be mindful about it, right? And so that's just one example. But um, I think the value of meditation, what it's become for me, is the ability to start applying that theory of mindfulness to other things that I do um, to help me make better decisions. Um, are there other activities that have a sort of meditative quality for you? Like like for me, like watching baseball, I yeah. find is very settling. Yeah. Not so much even at the game, but just like on TV, and I often don't even on the sound on, but it has well, like this... You know, it's so even more the radio. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Baseball, I mean, that's one of the great things about baseball, if you don't find it inherently boring, is <laughs> it does have this sort of just lull you into a, a sense of relaxation. And I actually really very much often will feel that way at the game because... Um, you're outside and you kind of the weather and all of that. And I, I can, you know, I, I feel, I don't feel that compelled to look at my phone during uh, a baseball game most of the time. Okay. So take where you are now yeah. and give some advice to the person who you were 10 years ago struggling to uh, figure out how to meditate, how to be mindful. Yeah. I mean, what, the, what are some of the tips that you would, you would, the first tip would just be, <laughs> you know, pursue this when you really want to, when it's meaningful to you, when you feel like it could really, you you know, you're doing it because you know, okay, this is a, I want to get from A to B and meditation will help me get there. Not, I looked at a list of what happy people do or successful people do or anxiety-free people do or whatever it is, it's on the list, so I got to check the box. If you're doing it to check the box, at least for me, doesn't work. So, and that might mean you don't do it for a while, right? But when you get to the point where you feel like, I want to do this because it will deliver these tangible benefits to me that can materially improve my life in these ways, that's the time to pursue it. And don't feel bad about yourself if you're not able to do it until that point. That's totally fine. So that's number one. Um, number two, and this is what I think every meditation expert and teacher will, will, will say to you constantly, which is... Um, Take it easy on yourself, right? I, I have a tendency to be pretty rough on myself, as, as you know. And there's no such thing as your mind completely, I mean, if you're some sort of like the Dalai Lama or whatever it is, right? But like my mind is crazy active, right? And like even when I'm meditating, it's working on multiple tracks at the same time. My mind is always working on multiple tracks at the same time. Um, don't, you don't have to berate yourself for that. It, you know, you're not failing in some way. All you have to do is just say, oh, you know, let me return my my focus to my breath, right? And that's it. And what the experts will tell you is the true practice of meditation isn't the focused breath. It's the being mindful of realizing that your mind has gone on to something else and bringing it back. And that that correction is the process, is the benefit. It's not you failing at it, right? So be generous with yourself. Take it easy with yourself. And the third would be, you know, if you have the resources to be able to have someone help you and teach you, it can be very, very valuable. Um, I think in part because, you know, I think what I've learned from Kim is as much as sort of like the right techniques is, you know, self-empathy so that, you know, I can go through this process without my usual sort of, you know, being so rough on myself and kind of getting something out of it and enjoying it, right? Because also I think when I tried to meditate before, because uh, – I felt like I was doing it wrong. It became an unpleasant experience, right? It felt like you were bad at it. Bad at it. I'm yelling at myself for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is in my head. Um, and, you know, I think her expertise and her credibility helped me 
accept and realize that in a way that you know I might not have been able to on my own. Um, you mentioned the apps that you used and that didn't really work for you. Do you think they're not useful just generally? Or? No, no, I think there's all, you know, look, I would argue that every single human being needs some form of therapy, right? Being a human is really complicated. It is filled with anxiety and traumas and problems. We don't understand how the brain works mainly, um, but we do know that, like, there's no one way to be. There's no perfect way to be. There's no standard that you're supposed to meet in terms of like how your brain should function. Um, we're all different. And the notion of having someone that you can talk to to say, here's what I'm worried about. And they can just give you some objective advice or feedback or just even repeating whatever it is, whatever, you know, that's really useful. So in a perfect world, um, Everybody would would have a therapist. Um, I understand that that's not um, realistic, um, but I do think, for example, that we should teach like DBT in schools rather than say Spanish, right? So like, all right, you know, you go to school, you learn some Spanish, you fucking forget it by the time that you're in college anyway. Um, and if you truly want to learn it, it's, as Corey is sitting here knows, go live in a Spanish-speaking country. I learned Spanish when I spent a semester in Madrid. They don't speak English in Madrid. I learned Spanish, right? Um, so. It doesn't have to be foreign language, but but I would argue that developing those skills of empathy and self-awareness and tools to deal with your anxiety are far more important for the development of a human being than learning more facts or how to conjugate those. So for you in your practice, are there are there sort of frontiers or horizons that you're no. sort of trying to see that part that's what I like about it, okay. right? Which is that normally I'm always striving to, to get to the next thing. goal, the right. next thing, whatever it is. And part of actually what I've learned through this whole process, the ketamine, the DBT, the meditation, is such a cliche, but it's, you know, it is the journey, not the process, in the sense of for years and years and years, I would achieve some big goal. And, you know, honestly, I've done a lot of fucking things, right? Uh, that's why you're listening to this podcast. And instead of feeling this incredible moment of satisfaction, I often felt despondent um, in those moments. And it's because every time I thought, oh, once I achieve this thing, I will just feel eternal bliss. And then, of course, you don't. And then I was like, oh, God, I'm never going to be happy, right? And what I've learned, and I think meditation has been helpful, is, you know, the process by which I go about something is what really matters. So, for example, um, school meals work that we do, right? So for the first time ever, we are starting to take in financial partners, right? Because up until now, I've always said, I have to solve this and I have to do it with my money that I make and I can be happy about it when every kid in this country has food. And what I've learned is it is really good for me to try to do these things to help people. That generates fulfillment for me, which makes me a happier person. Um, we've been pretty effective. I think we've come up with a method we talked on this podcast before that works really well. We're now trying to scale it so that it, it can exist beyond my financial resources. Um, but, but the act of doing it is what really matters, not the, I can only be happy when I finally get Congress to put an extra $10 billion in the federal budget for, for school meals, right? I'm still trying to do all those things. And look, we've passed laws this past session in New York and Connecticut and Vermont. I think we're gonna get some something in North Carolina still when the budget's done. Um, and so, you know, overall, the bills that we've worked on have helped 12 million plus people get access to food on a regular basis who wouldn't have had it otherwise. So the results are there and they're great, but I shouldn't be judging myself 
solely by the result. It's it's the I am trying to do something good, and the fact that I'm trying to do something good uh, generates a sense of fulfillment and meaning for me. And if the two main pillars of happiness science are that people are happiest based if they have meaningful relationships with people where there's reciprocity and there's people they can count on. And by the way, it can be a spouse, it could be friends, family, whatever, colleagues, whatever it is. But if you have those kinds of relationships and then you have things that you do that bring you fulfillment and meaning, and that could be your work, it could be a creative pursuit, a hobby, a volunteer thing like I do with hunger, whatever it is, if you have those two things in your life, you are more likely to feel happy than if you lack those two things in your life. And so, um, yeah, and and so I, I think these are all things that I've been figuring out. Now you have a, uh, we're going to close with a sort of related short essay that you've yeah. written. Do you want to just I'm gonna, sort of I'm, give it? I'm going to read it because. you want to give any preview? You just want to jump you know, right no, in? I, I, it's funny. I just woke up the other morning, I'm sure this happens to everyone, where I just sort of like all of a sudden like, oh, and like this sort of thought hits me. And sometimes when that happens, I'll start writing because I can express myself better in writing and, and I can sort of develop my own thoughts better if I see the words in front of me on a screen. Um, and so th this is what I wrote. Um, it says, this is a very half-formed thought, but I think it takes a long time to figure out how to be a human being. The upside of being human is we have all kinds of tools other species don't have. The downside is learning how to deploy and handle all those tools rather than just following a predetermined path. We try to teach our kids what they need to know to survive in the world and in the system that we've created. But most of that is intellectual or practical, not emotional, and we're governed by emotions. Figuring that out, figuring out who you are, what matters to you, accepting that, and living it takes an incredibly long time. At least for me, it's taken decades. And because our emotions are so complex, our brains are so complex to the point where we don't really understand them, and because we don't live in a vacuum, we're processing both our own thoughts and feelings and everyone else's views on how we should think, feel, and act. And that results in it taking a long time, and again, for me, decades, to sort through all of that and emerge knowing who you are and being happy with that, and then when things aren't working, being able to make changes. As I turn 50, and I'm turning 50 in a few months, it feels like I'm finally getting there, and it also feels like most people my age are kind of this in the same place, right? They're getting there too. And now I know, stop reading, start talking, but I'll go back to reading. Um, this bodes well in terms of increased life expectancy, especially the types of gains that experts believe are possible, which is maybe everyone living to 120, 150 healthy years. Then arguably, if we first figure this stuff out at 50, if your lifespan is 100, you should have 50 much better, happier years. And if your lifespan is 70, you only get 20 of them. And it may also mean that we're approaching the first part of life wrong. Because society is so big, we have to create systems and generalizations. But what we see as the necessary skills to make it through life practically maybe are less important than the skills to better understand what it means to be human, what it means to understand yourself, to accept yourself, and to realize what does and doesn't actually matter. Maybe you just need decades of life experience to reach that point, so teaching it to our kids wouldn't achieve anything. Or maybe we can help people figure this out a lot faster and therefore have a greater percentage of their life be better. Maybe this is all just reflective of my own deficiencies, and most people don't struggle and take so long to learn what being human means. But my gut is that it's pretty universal, and maybe that's just the way it has to be. Or maybe if we recognize it broadly, we can embrace the challenge sooner and get to the right place faster. Bradley, thanks very much. Thanks for having me.